Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. This is Michael Waits from Asia Tech Podcast Stories. I am just about to talk to Miles Wilson. Miles is the Senior Director of Global Commercial Leadership, and I'd love to find out exactly what that means in Singapore. Looks like Miles has had almost a 10-year career, if not more, with um, Coca-Cola and across the region, not just in Singapore. Is that right, Miles? That's right, yeah. So uh, 12 years with Coke. Super. Um, in Sydney, Hong Kong, Shanghai, and now Singapore. Do you want to like back up a little bit? I like to find out why people ended up where they were. I can tell you kind of why I ended up where I was, but I'm just curious, like, how did you end up at Coke? What did you do after you graduated, and what kind of made you leave home? Are you are you from Sydney originally, or are you from another part of Australia? I'm from London. From so London, I'm born oh my god! In the UK, oh, wow. um, contrary to my accent, that uh, my, yeah. my dad's Australian because it hints a little bit. Of, it hints a little bit at Australia. Yeah, oh yeah. There's well, I, I think there's more than a little bit. If you ask my mum, she's uh, she thinks there's far too much <laughs> too Australian much, in it. Too there, much. <laughs> But, uh, but no, I, I was born and bred in the UK, lived in London until I was 16. Okay. And then uh, my dad, who's the Australian side of the family, um, and my mum sort of were in their mid-40s and were sort of looking at, at, at lifestyle, really, and say, well, you know, looking 20 years down the track, where do we want to be in Sydney versus London? Um, they decided to, to move back to Sydney. So for me at the time, that was actually really difficult, right? I'm almost say. 16, yep. um, going into what we call year 11. Oh, God, done um, that. You know, you got your last two years of high school, and all of a sudden, you're uprooted to the other side of the world oh. at, a, at a time where there's no Facebook, no email, you know, and 16-year-old boys don't write letters to each other. No, they don't. So, so it was a how did you do very that? tough time. How did you do it? I mean, I, I spent a lot of time when I was a kid moving around as well, but it was state to state, which was hard enough. But moving, and it's not like you moved from London to Paris, Mm. Right, which would have been hard enough. You went from London to Sydney. It's literally on the other side of the world, almost. Right. I mean, how did how did you do it? Yeah, I mean, look, like anything, you just do it, right? I think when you when you're that when when you're that young, maybe the gravity of the change doesn't hit you as hard. Um, you know, if I was doing it at thirty, where you're a bit more aware of yourself, maybe it would have maybe it would have hit me a bit harder. But I think that. Uh, the, the draw of moving to Sydney, the sun, the surf, the weather, like all of that stuff that you hear about Australia and the, the lifestyle that you get over there, I think that overpowered the reality of the situation that I was leaving my lifetime friends behind and probably not going to see a lot of them again. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that sort of realisation kicked in maybe sort of six weeks after I landed. <laughs> oh, this place is lovely, but wow, actually, hang on, I didn't really think this through, did I? Right, where are my friends? Yeah, that's right. Did, did you play sport when you were going into year 11? I did. So I've always been. I've always been a bit of a sportsman, thankfully. So, yeah. so that was a saving grace, right? I'm a good soccer player and tennis and all of that. So, you know, I was able to sort of jump into the first eleven soccer team and and uh, you know, kind of uh, I, I guess earn my stripes through sport, and that allowed me to assimilate much much quicker. It was still tough, but it, it helped. I was going to say. So when I moved, and again, not nearly as far as you did, but when I moved to Pennsylvania, soccer saved me because. You know, you just you tried for the team. People don't know who you are, but they see that, oh, my God, that guy's skilled. He can score. He can play defense or he can play midfield. And then you're automatically a friend, regardless of where you came from and what you look like. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then if you can actually score and add value, then uh, that helps even more. But isn't this – and I didn't even want to go this direction, but isn't that really a metaphor for business in a way? Like this adaptability and able to move from like one place to another place, one company to another company or one role to another and just kind of – 
excel. So find yourself on a team and then just say, I can actually add value here. And whether you're tall or short or whatever, people don't really make a value judgment about you except can you add value? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. And, and, and increasingly, what I'm seeing at least is transferability of skills um, across industries. So I'm, I'm an FMCG guy, right? I've, right? I've been an FMCG in some way, shape or form for 20 years, whether it's working for AC Nielsen, working for FMCG companies or running Coles, Woolworths accounts or, or, or what I've done with Coke for the last 12 years. And so the, the skill set you build up there is is increasingly transferable. And as I talk to other people in, in the industry and I sit on a few industry councils um, and boards that, um, you know, increasingly are looking for people with FMCG skills and vice versa right? because you want to bring in new thinking and, and those skill sets that we're getting – you know, as it relates to technology and digital, it's becoming increasingly transferable regardless of the industry that you work in. So I think um, the more we realize that, the more we're going to see people moving across industries and the better I think that is for everyone. Do you think that um, that impacts the way you hire people, the way you interview people and the way you build your teams? Look, um, it, it depends, which is a terrible answer. No, but it's fair. Um, it's, it's fair. I mean, that's a fair answer. I'm, I'm really curious, though. Yeah, look, I, I think I think I think it depends on two things. I think one, it depends on on the company and the role, and I think the other depends on the individual. So, you know, if, if the company is a progressive company that's trying to advance itself in into the digital space, like Coca Cola is, we are um, looking for people. Obviously, in certain like in the commercial spaces where I operate, we are looking for different types of skill sets. So I'll, I'll give you an example, right? So Please. so we're going through um, some, some structural changes at the moment, and, and one of the skills that we're looking to bring into the company is what we're, what we're talking about, a digital translator, right? So it's effectively someone that can sit between um, our customer and commercial teams and the IT teams to effectively translate what the other is talking about. You know, you get a hardcore IT guy in the room with a bunch of customer guys, and there's going to be some disconnect there between what the two are saying. Exactly. So you need someone who's got that commercial acumen, but enough IT expertise or digital expertise to be able to connect the dots. And and in, especially in emerging and developing markets that are, from a consumer perspective, digitally savvy, right? Very high penetration of smartphones, yep. and 3G, 4G penetration. But yet the capability level in these areas from a commercial standpoint is quite low. That role becomes very, very important. So we are looking for, for different types of skill sets now, and we're not going to find that in FMCG. You know, we need to go out into other emerging areas that can, uh, that can help get us that. But this is really interesting, right? There's a lot of talk today about how artificial intelligence and augmented reality and machine learning is going to remove humans from the necessity to be working, and yet a digital translator and i just thinking about this on the fly, right? It's something that a machine can't necessarily do, right? So you think about a, a millennial or a 19 or a 20-year-old who's been on a cell phone, a mobile phone, their entire lives. That's their only real overall interaction with the internet and technology. And that person can sit down, but you said has no commercial experience, right? But that person can sit down with a user of the FMCG product and talk to the tech team and say, I think what they really want is this, so that whole concept of a digital translator is not even something you can study in college. Do you know what I mean? Like there's no major in college for digital translation, but it's a role that's going to need to get filled, which, frankly, I hadn't even considered. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an area that we're just starting to move into now. And you're right, the types of people that we will tap into for that will probably not have the traditional education that you might have going into other types of roles. Right, and you've also been involved, and this is really fascinating to me, in the, in the supply chain as well. Mm. Whereas this is yeah. something that really happens. It's like the, 
it's like the back end, the super back end, right? Uh, and the plumbing of how any business really works. But I don't think most people understand sort of how non-trivial a supply chain is. So how you get the things that actually make products from one place to another, assemble them, and then actually distribute them to their, their clients. You want to talk a little bit about like how you got involved with that? Again, something that most people don't study. Sure. And, and look, I mean, supply chain is, is the oxygen of any business, right? It's Absolutely. not, the, it's not the, the flashy front end, if you no. will. But, but if, if your supply chain is not right, the rest of it, the rest of it falls apart. Um, well, so, Apple's a perfect, uh, Apple's a perfect it, example of this, right? I mean, if you look at what Tim Cook did coming from Compact yeah. Computer into Steve Jobs was pretty smart in hiring him because Apple previously had made good products but had no way of actually organizing the supply chain in a way that could, could control the supply in relation to demand. They either made too many products or too few products, but they completely mucked that up over time, yeah? Mm. Sorry. And, and then, of course, and then they, they, own, they own the supply of critical parts. Correct. You know? so, yep. so that then effectively acts as the ultimate blocker of competition in a legal way yeah. um, to, to stop the other guys copying your tech. Yeah. Anyway, so go ahead. I interrupted you. You were saying yeah, it's, sure. the, so, it's so, the oxygen. So, yeah, so, so look, it really is the auction. So, so an example of this, and I'll get back to your original question of how I got in there and, and some of the stuff that I did. But, but you know, I looked after the McDonald's business for, for uh, almost six years, and either at the country level or at the the, the APMIA, Asia Pacific Middle East Africa level. Yep. Um, and wonderful, wonderful customer, by the way. Um, you know, at both Coca Cola and McDonald's, we we share our we share similar challenges in the public eye. You know, in terms of uh, you know what we call category headwinds and, and etc. Um, but we have uh, a 60-year partnership all based say. on a handshake, yep. Yep. ironically. No, yep. no contract, just based on a handshake. Nice. And uh, just a wonderful strategic alignment between two brands that, that just go together to the point where I often get asked whether Coke owns McDonald's or does McDonald's own Coke. <laughs> you know, I mean, the answer is no, by the way, but, but I often get that question. Uh, but the reason why I use this example is that, you know, when, we, when they go through a supplier assessment or what they call their SPI, it's led by their supply chain function. Now, it assesses not just how we act as a supplier, it assesses how we work together from a financial standpoint, from a pricing protocol standpoint, um, from a business effectiveness standpoint, there's a lot more in there than, mm. you know, are we servicing you at 100%? But it's led by supply chain intentionally because this is what, this, that is the primary basis for a successful partnership is when your supply chain works. You know, you can market a product, but if the product's not on the shelf, then, then you're wasting your money and you're wasting your time. So one of the reasons why I, I got in, into that is, first of all, working with McDonald's um, supply chain was a very big part of my job, um, making sure the product was there, making sure we had the processes in place from you know, a demand planning standpoint, from a forecasting standpoint, from a productivity standpoint, you know, cost to serve standpoint, all of those things that, that make a, a effective and efficient supply chain. Um, and so... When I moved into the, to the regional role, we, we'd had, I'd had a lot of success doing that type of work with McDonald's in Australia, and we wanted to replicate that, a lot of that across Asia, where um, we were still, um, I guess, growing, and there was a lot more opportunity. Mm. And so, um, so I was put into that role um, with McDonald's, and then later I did a similar type of work with the likes of Tesco and Carrefour, Metro, and all our big um, key account, international key accounts that were looking to grow and expand across Asia about how do we improve the way we service these customers. Now, um, you know, in, in the case of Tesco and Carrefour and Walmart, um, we weren't doing a great job um, back in sort of 2011-12. Um, it had got called out at a few top-to-tops that our supply chain and our delivery le levels into these customers wasn't great. 
Um, so I was asked to come in and, and work with our bottlers and our markets to improve the way we service it. And, you know, we have very different delivery models. You know, these guys want us to go through the DC and we have a direct store model. Um, these guys wanted competitive trading terms that we'd give them in the UK and we didn't want to give it to them in China because it's 0.001% of our business. Right. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, challenges and complications that come with managing these big customers um, from a supply chain standpoint but from a broader commercial standpoint as well. But the good thing is, is you can work with these guys. It can, it can be tricky, but, but you can work with these guys. And, and what I found worked for me was when you, you pick a customer that was particularly collaborative, um, and that tends to be relationship-led as well, someone that you, you work very well with on the customer side at a senior level, prove out the model, and then you can look to expand that across your business, and, and that's what we did. Right, and I think McDonald's is actually the perfect metaphor for the entire, for the way that a supply chain actually leads to consistency and then leads to a better business. If I go back and study the difference between why a company, it's not the only reason why, but why a company like McDonald's was always able to outperform a company like Burger King in the United States, it was that when you went into a McDonald's outlet, whether it was the French fries that were supplied by Simplot or whether it was the drinks that were supplied by Coca-Cola, is that it was consistent in almost every outlet where you where you went. And that is really the effectiveness of the supply chain in my mind, or at least it was when I was younger. And to actually see that manifest itself in all the relationships, like you said, whether it's with Walmart or Carrefour or Tesco, is a testament to just how important that is in the development of any business. Without a shadow of a doubt, without a shadow of a doubt, and particularly in, you know, in the case of French fries and the Simplot example you give, um, absolutely. I mean, obviously, in-store disciplines, operational disciplines around you know, how long you fry the, the, the chips, or how you serve them is a big part of it, and particularly with us with Fountain, right? So each restaurant is its own manufacturing location, correct? Right? Because correct, because they're taking ingredients. Water. Exactly. That's where we mix it. So, so the, 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 the quality maintenance program we have behind that um, is is huge because we can give them the best syrup in the world, but if it's mixed at the wrong ratio, or it, you know the, the, the drinks come out flat or warm, then the, the consumer experience is not going to be a good one. So it's it's definitely a mixture of both. But again, if we don't get them the syrup, doesn't matter what the calibration is like on the fountain tower. Correct. I mean, but that's in my mind. So the supply chain doesn't end, particularly in this example where the ingredients end up at the store. Like you said, you make a really good point, and I haven't heard this before either, is that it's their own manufacturing plant. But the manufacturing discipline matters as much as the supply chain discipline, and those things have to work in combination. Otherwise, the whole thing falls down. Like you said, if the right syrup and the right water kind of arrives at the location, so the supply chain worked up until that point, but the training and the discipline on the manufacturing side doesn't work, and again, it's, whether it's a factory like a McDonald's outlet or a real factory that's making cars, if either side of that breaks down, then the product breaks down. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why a good business manager is able to make sure that both happen and not just one. But it's interesting to me, right? So when I started in finance, and hopefully you'll see an equivalency here, I started in the back office, right? So at Morgan Stanley, I was in the accounting and controllers department, and then I did some stuff in the tech department. And when I moved into trading, which was actually the factory, right, where all those components came together, it, you made a much better trader if you understood what happened to a trade before it happened, after it happened, and the technology that got used to create it. And I think essentially what you're saying is that every business is exactly the same way. And if you learn that, then you get back to what you talked about earlier, that transferability of skills and experience actually exists. Yeah, absolutely right. If that's fair. That's, yeah, it is. And, and it, it's up to us as as you know, I guess leaders in the industry to recognize that and to look for that and not just look for 
um, the standard skill set that we know as we recruit for new roles and, and, and really kind of embrace different skill sets, different backgrounds, um, because particularly in this day and age, um, that's where we're going to get a competitive advantage, not by hiring another guy who works for Unilever that does the same thing as me. Right. I mean, I was just thinking the same thing. So like in Thailand in particular, you could take somebody out of the old Pepsi business because it doesn't really exist anymore, right? Or out of the new business that was created out of the Pepsi leadership and bring them into Coca-Cola. And it could actually end up being toxic because whether the culture, and I'm not saying it would be, but I'm saying whether the culture is different or their understanding of how that whole chain works could be different. You may be better off hiring somebody from, I don't know, Lazada. Mm. You just don't know, right? Anyway, exactly. so do you want to talk to me about, so a few years ago when I was sitting in the Ardent Capital offices, and I'm not sure if you've heard of Ardent Capital, but it's... I have. You have, okay. So I was sitting in the Ardent Capital offices and two people from Coca-Cola Innovation, and I think it was called Coca-Cola Digital back then, came into our office and discussed like Coke's initiative in the digital space, which I think is different than what you're talking about when you talk about digital enablement. But if you could talk a little bit about that for me as well, and how you talk about technology and use it in the context of your FMCG business. I'd be really interested to know more about that. Sure, sure. I mean, that, that's a big question. That's a big question. Yeah. Look, um, my role, and, and, and maybe just to give some context to my answer, I, I, as you mentioned, I head up the, the, the global commercial leadership function. Yep. Um, and what that means in Coke language is um, we kind of break it up into, into four areas. First is revenue growth management. So things like pack price channel strategy. If we're going to launch Coke Zero, What's the right pack size? What outlet does it go into? How do we price it relative to our portfolio? Um, How do we look to drive revenue? Um, You know, US is a good example where we're driving smaller packs at higher revenue to to drive that top line. Then how do we get it to market? So we've identified what we want to put where. Then we have to get it to market, which is the route to market piece. Do we go direct? Do we go indirect? And then the the, the third piece is around in-outlet execution, or RED as we call it, right execution daily. Um, which is around what's the right path to purchase, what's the planogram for the cooler need to look like, how do we audit the outlet, how do we use technology to audit that outlet. Um, and so they're effectively the three buckets that, that fall under um, what we define as, as commercial. Okay. Now, within that, how we use um, digital um, is, is, is varied, but I would say there are two main areas. Um, first relates to our coolers or our fridges, of which we have about 16 million out there in, in the landscape around the world. So just a few? Yeah, just a couple, just a couple. <laughs> um, and then the, the second um, relates to our field force and, and sales force automation and how our field force is using technology to make better and smarter decisions in the outlet. So um, the first one, as it relates to coolers, um, is, as I say, we have 16 million coolers out there, right? Plus or minus. Right. And these are permanent assets that our shoppers walk past every day of their life. Now, they're not always opening the door, but they go past them. They're, they're a standing billboard, if you will, um, for our brands. Um, now, in a couple of years ago, they were effectively not connected. So they were they were standard assets that were getting refilled daily, selling our products, but not communicating to the shopper, not listening to the shopper. Um, And so we did a a lot of work around how do we start partnering with technologies that are out there in the industry, from the likes of Wellington and Blue Vision and and Vodafone and eBest, et cetera, um, around um, connecting these coolers. And so for what I believe is a relatively low cost compared to the cost of the cooler, we're able to track the asset. So if the cooler's been moved, we know where it's gone. 
um, which may sound like a simple thing, but when you've got as many as we do that often end up in people's back sheds, in people's man caves, um, you know, going from one store to another, um, tracking these becomes a very important piece and, and obviously a big cost saving for us. The second, second is then is, is around um, controlling the asset. So we know how many times the door's been opened. Um, we can then start, based on that, we can start correlating, well, if, if the door's been opened 10 times but we've only sold one product a day, right. then we know we've got a purity issue because they're opening the door to get something but it's not our product. So is it milk? Is it Pepsi? Is it watermelons? Is it noodles? Who knows? Um, but we can start doing some, some basic analytics that allows us to determine what the purity of that cooler is. When you say purity, what, what, what do you mean? I mean so you by mean purity, other... so a, a cooler that's 100% pure would have 100% Coca-Cola Coke. products got it. in. Okay, got it, right? got it, got it. So, um, and we have purity targets based on um, the types of coolers and the agreements we have with, with the customer. Oh, and right, because so you can't, you can't the, check the that. The purity, the better. Sorry, I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I hadn't thought about this, right? So you give a cooler to somebody, you own, you either own it or lease it or they buy it, but there's some relationship between the Coca-Cola company. It's Coca-Cola branded and it has Coca-Cola in it. But it, at the end of the day, it could be in a remote place where it's just a refrigerator, essentially. And I'm simplifying to make the point. But you don't know what they're putting in there because you're not there. So that's, that's what you're talking about with purity. So you could be Coke in there. Theoretically, there's no other branded soda product or Coke product, whether it's, you know, Snap or whoever the other brand is. But they could put in, they could put milk in there. They could put orange juice in there that's not one of your brands. You don't know because you're not there. So that's interesting from a purity perspective. And I guess if you can track that with technology remotely, that's really powerful. Well, look, it is. And, and so I guess I, we can track that, not, a, not, on, a, not on a real-time basis, but, but um, we are looking to evolve the way we get a better understanding sure. of what's in the outlet. And if you're a gold-level outlet with a very high VPO or volume per outlet – then, um, then we'll be in there two or three times a week. Sure, we sure, know sure. what's in that cooler. Right. If you're a mom and pop sorry sorry store out the back of um, Luzon in the Philippines, mm-hmm. we're going to you once a month, and then we don't know what's in there. Right. Uh, or if we're going indirect and we're going through a wholesaler, we don't even know what the outlet is. So let alone what's in that outlet. So technology is really helping us to understand, um, as I mentioned, where the coolers are. Got it. Understanding what's in the cooler to to some degree. But then also we can understand um, you know, through proximity sensors how many people are walking past the cooler. So you can start to get incidence rates. You know, 100 people walk past and the door opened twice. So we got a 2% incidence. It allows us to understand whether the cooler is located in the right part of the store. And then what it also does, and this is a big cost saving as well, is around um, it allows us to understand whether the cooler is operating effectively. So we can control the temperatures. We know whether the fan speed's right. We know whether the door is starting to sag. Um, you know, so these, these sensors allow us to do some level one to level two analytics around whether the, the cooler is operating effectively. So we can then be more structured in our technical calls versus a guy going to store X once every three months because it, it fits into his route plan. Right. And maybe there's an issue, maybe there's a not. We can say, well, we now know there's an issue in that outlet. Build it into your route plan over the week. And so every call then becomes a productive call rather than a, than, than a checking call. So connecting our cooler base um, is, is, is a big play for us, and, and we're, we're aggressively expanding that out, out globally. And then I guess um, to your point, Michael, around not knowing what's in the cooler, 
image recognition right. is then a part yep. as well, right? Yep. And, and this ties into either our Salesforce automation, but also, you know, we're playing around with cool with cameras in the coolers. I was like, I was going to ask that, but sure. Mm. So we have a, you know, I mean, it comes at a cost, and and you know, you've got to kind of weigh up the cost benefits of all of this. But um, you know, by putting a camera in there, every time the door is opened, it takes a photograph. Um, we then know what's in there. We know if we have out of stocks. We know if there's a purity issue. Um, so, uh, so using you know technology from Tracks and Planorama and others allows us to um, to see and, and understand what's what's in that cooler. Right. Um, we use that technology through handhelds as well through our, our audits that we do on a, on a fairly regular basis. But you know if we can integrate that into the cooler and we can see what's in there, then it's it's, it's very very powerful. Right. So in my mind, I'm trying to construct the optimal Coca-Cola branded cooler. So let me just run through this a little bit. Here is a cooler that sits in, let's call it a high traffic or medium traffic location. So you know where the location is, but it has location sensors on it and a GPS. Therefore, you know where it is and and all of the data around its location, right? But you can also have temperature sensors on it for the inside and the outside. So you can control the temp and it's connected. Yes. Yeah, so you can control the inside of the box as while also knowing what the outside of the box temperature is, which helps you control the inside. That's just the beginning. You can also have a stocking mechanism internally, so it understands how much product goes in. That's Coca-Cola itself. That can be controlled by what's on the packaging that's in there and sensors internal to the box. And you can tell, like you said, every time the door opens, does someone take one piece out, two piece out? Do they take a case out, a six-pack out? All this type of information. Now, and I'm just saying basic stuff, right? I haven't even gotten to really complicated things. But further to that, Depending on where you are in the world, in Asia is probably a great place to test this because of people's opinions and ideas about privacy. But you can actually put camera sensors and um, identity sensors on them. Where So if someone comes with a mobile phone that has an NFC chip in it or some type of Bluetooth enablement, you can actually tell what they've bought, how they've bought it, how much they've bought, when the last time was that they bought it. And you can actually personalize through the cooler somebody's experience with buying a Coca-Cola product because you know who they are based on some sort of facial recognition or some identification, whether it's the, the MAC address in their phone or some way to identify who they are, then you can really tell who they are. And it means that you talk about sort of location-based advertising, local deals. You have a whole bunch of companies, right, trying to do proximity-related deals and you can then control on an individual and an individualized basis, like who's buying your product, how they're buying it. You could actually do individual pricing if you think about it, just based on technology in that cooler. Like, is that an insane idea? No, it's not. No, it's not. I mean, I think everything you said there stacks up. Some, some's ready available now. Some is more aspirational. For sure. Um, but, but I think, I think certainly the part around understanding the cooler, where it is, and what's in it, um, we're doing right now. Right. How we get targeted around how we use it as a beacon to communicate to shoppers is really a one size fits all at the moment. Right. Um, and so we need to be careful that we're not just pinging out, you know, buy one get one free messages yeah, as soon yeah. as you get into a hundred meter proximity range. And you start frustrating and pissing off the customer. Right, nobody wants that. Or the right, shopper, I should say. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we need to, that part of it. We need to balance. But again, these these coolers are set up with that technology enablement for us to be able to do that. Right. Um, and so uh, getting more targeted in how we do that is is a big opportunity for us. Right. So you have 16 million coolers out there. Mm. I guess it's going to be a constant replacement process and constant upgrade process to make sure that you know, on an optimal basis, as many of those coolers has as much of the modern or most recent technology in them as possible. Like, how do you manage that? Again, it's like a supply chain issue as well, right? 
Look, it is. I mean, some of the technology, so, so a lot of this stuff that I mentioned is actually available through one controller unit. So it's not like you've got to put different, no, no, no. different modules and different beacons on to, to track the door openings versus the, the asset tracking. Of course. You can do a, almost all, everything that I talked about through a single controller unit. That controller unit, in some cases, is already in the cooler lying dormant, and so we need to kind of flick it on and, 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 uh, and start using the information. And, of got course, it. using the information is, is really the hard part. Um, but, but to your question around how you effectively retrofit um, is, is without a doubt a, a challenge. And so what we do, we, we go through a retrofitting process with our coolers anyway, right? We want right, to make right, sure right. that the livery and the, the externals are up to date with the latest graphics. So as and when the cooler goes in for a refurb, we would then include this technology as part of that. Um, or ideally, we go further upstream and we work with the technology suppliers to partner with the cooler suppliers to say when we buy the cooler – we want it to already come with this tech. Now, that's where we ultimately need to be, and that's where, you know, in, in, in a couple of years' time, I think every cooler we have will come with this tech automatically. We're just going through that transition phase now. Right. I mean, with 16 million of them distributed globally, that in and of itself is a massive um, logistical yeah. problem, which to me is fascinating. Right. I mean, one of the companies, if you go back to what um, Arden Capital did and they they built this company called e-commerce, so it's a logistics company. So to me, logistics is really close to home. I just love thinking about the minutiae about how these individual things get built out and create this massive network of information. Right. So if you think about all the coolers that you have, all 16 million of them now now gathering information and data, do you guys build your own data science internally as well to analyze all that data? And is that something that falls under your purview? Yeah, so, so so this is the tricky part. So no, it doesn't fall under my purview. Um, it, well, that's not true. So I am involved in in the discussions around how we solve for this. Okay. Um, at the moment, because we're in our relative infancy, as as most of the industry sure. is around, we now have a wealth of information at our fingertips. How do we then process it, digest it, analyze it, and turn it into meaningful insights right. in a timely way? Where initially. It's got, to, it's got to be outsourced, right? We just don't have no. the resources or the skill set to, to, to do big data analytics in a way that, that is meaningful. So, um, you know, ten, ta- tapping into third-party suppliers that have a lot of very smart data scientists that can help us process the information is primarily where we are. A, a number of our lead bottlers, big bottlers in, in, in markets in Eastern Europe, in South Pacific, are starting to bring some data scientists in-house um, to enable them to process the data. Um, but they're doing that in a way where um, the data inputs are multiple, but it's still on a relatively small test basis. Right. Um, so I would imagine, Michael, over time, we will build out capability internally, whether it's through like a shared service model that we would have in Manila or Bangalore, um, where we could process that data centrally, or whether it's done at a local level um, is, is still being worked through. Um, but but right now, third party is primarily where we're at right now. Just fascinating. I don't think most people walk past a Coca-Cola cooler and think about big data. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's just maybe it's just you and me. I don't know. I really hope they don't. No, of course they're doing, they're doing a pretty bad job. <laughs> I was going to say, right? please put your fingerprint here. I don't think it's going to work yeah, for most people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, and I get in, in a way it benefits everybody if everyone isn't thinking about big data. But the idea that that all of these outlets, and I think Coca-Cola is probably at the forefront of doing this, right? To create, to cal- to sorry, accumulate all this data and use it to sort of better serve their clients and better serve their customers and shoppers, to me, is a fascinating idea. We were just talking about coolers. There was more technology, actually, that you were going to talk about, and I kind of interrupted you or maybe led this down this street a little bit, right? 
No, sure, sure. So, so the, again, this is this is related to the commercial space. So, cool. This is a big piece. The second piece is around um, how we um, how we use technology and information again in a big data way to make better informed decisions in the outlet. So, Salesforce effectiveness is the industry term around you know how effectively our reps and pre-sellers oh, and right, right, right. in the outlet are more effective in the outlet. Salesforce automation is the handheld technology they use in order to be able to do that. So, again, we're a big company with different bottlers at different levels of development, but broadly speaking, um, the pre-seller or the sales rep will have a tablet handheld, whether it's Samsung, Apple, whatever it might be, and then on there will be um, a a whole range of information from um, sales history to weather data to, in some cases, predictive orders, um, the outlet level picture of success, so what should the outlet look like, um, the path to purchase information, there will be things like um, suggestive selling models. Um, and so really it's a very powerful piece of information that allows the, the rep to understand what that store should look like in a perfect world, what it does look like today based on, on an audit that was either done that same day or at a, a, a time reasonably close by to that, that, uh, that, that meeting point. Um, and then how do we use that information to then start guiding them to say, well, we know this store used to sell three cases of Coke Zero. It's only sold two. Right. We know that it's only sold two because we've had an out of stock for the last week. Um, we know that it's the time of day. We actually know that schools are on holiday now. Um, the weather temperatures are slightly cooler, so people are buying less. We also know that the competitors have done a buy one, get one free offer on a comparative pack. With all of that taken into account, we should be selling X and we're only selling Y. Right. Here's what that suggested order should be based on all of those elements. That's where we want to get to. That's how we're using all of these different data points to make smarter, more informed decisions in the outlet versus the, the, the rep going in there and saying, well, you should be selling three. You've only sold two. Right. You need to order an extra one. Yeah, there are so many variables, particularly if you're in seasonal markets. You know, I'm Australian, right? So if you're down on Bondi Beach, yep. you're going to sell more water in summer than you do in winter. For sure. Uh, but, you know, do we do we change our picture of success and our planogram um, to, to compensate for that? So using technology that allows us to get as real time as we can to influence that decision is is really, really powerful and, and, and where the direction that we want to be heading. So what's the, and I mean, I could not agree with you more, the idea of implementing technology to understand you know, sort of seasonality and just the reasons behind upticks or downticks in sales and not just not just the trends, but why they're actually happening is really important. I mm. guess the, the other question for me is when you go to individual outlets or even back up a step and go to the bottlers, what is their view on the implementation of this really powerful technology that the parent company has? In other words, how accepting are they of all that data? Because uh, they so, must have been running this business a little bit out of the gut for years, and now they're saying, wow, now I have access to this. Are they happy with that, unhappy with it? What's their acceptance and uptake? They're absolutely happy with it. So, I mean, the reality is, Michael, the bottlers have been running with this te- technology for years. Um, again, depending on the part of the world that you're in, right. depends on how progressive they are. Um, you know, but Europe, Australia have, you know, been running with this kind of technology for 10 years now. So they're very developed. Other parts of the world are still kind of getting their arms around it. So, you know, from a, from a Coca-Cola company standpoint, our role is to try and bring some consistency, economies of scale, new thinking, um, different ways to approach it. Um, and, and, you know, obviously share some of the good work that's going on across the system and so other markets can learn from it. So bottlers are 110% 
on board with this and the value that it can bring. Um, that's it's been that way now for for a number of years. Um, the challenge is now, well, really, what are the areas of all of the different levers that you can pull in this Salesforce automation space? Which are the ones that really make a difference? Which are the ones that actually give you the biggest bang for your buck? And therefore, what should we focus on as a business um, to really get good at versus others that may be right for some markets, um, but uh, may not be right for others? And so that's kind of where, where we're at right now, but, but the, the bottlers in our system are 100, 100% on board with this. And is this something that's always been part of the Coca-Cola company at the parent level, this sort of implementation of technology across the board to make the company more efficient? Or is this something that is new, so new blood's coming in and it's kind of integrating it into the company? Or is this a cultural thing that's just been around forever? Yeah, I mean, look, certainly the, the, a role that we have at the center within, co- within the Coke company is to, is to bring new technologies and scale what we know works. So, right. so that principle is very much there. What I would say is um, the, the, the corporate commercial function now is, is more forward-looking than they've ever been. So historically, we spent a lot of time scaling what we know works, right? And, so, and, and that's a very important part of, of our role is, you know, we know that – the process we have around executing the outlet works, and we call it RED and, and or SFE, and, and so how do we scale that and roll it out? Everyone's on board with that now in, in, in some way, shape, or form. So our focus now, and, and Julie Hamilton, our, our chief customer and commercial officer, is continually pushing us to make sure that we're looking at the next big thing um, and identifying what it is and, and then working on a way to, to, to bring it to the markets. And and the te- two technologies that we talked about, whether it's through connected coolers or, or Salesforce automation and specific elements within that, is exactly what we're looking to try and do. And, and so, for example, you know, within Salesforce automation, how do we do an outlet level picture of success? Not right. a channel level, yep. but an outlet level picture of success. How do we use this technology to be able to do that? And how do we come together as a system um, to, to kind of bring the scale and the knowledge and the know-how that we have together so we can partner on creating a solution. That's the role that we play. And, and of course, technology and is, is a huge part of that. Right. So in that context, right, and you mentioned it earlier, particularly in the, in the area of big data and the analysis of big data, you said you go to third parties, which for now must has to be the right way. And obviously, the Coca-Cola company is not the only company that's doing this because internally building your own sort of big data analysis teams and having data scientists around is not something that people have been doing forever necessarily. But I guess the question is, from a CVC, right, so from a corporate venture capital or just an investment perspective, is this something as well that you're also developing to try to find? Remember, you talked before about controlling the supply chain as a way of playing defense to play offense, right? Being able to have a competitive advantage by being able to control the supply of the goods, that, the inputs that go into your business in a way that Apple did sort of with flash memory, right? They buy flash memory five years out and it means nobody else can buy it. But is there a way through venture capital and investing that the Coca-Cola company looks at that as well without giving away sort of proprietary information? But I'm just curious what your view on that is. In other words, do you have the internal ability to look at the tech landscape and say, this thing is really going to help us or these five things have the potential to help us? We should invest from a VC or a private equity perspective to try to build that out and make sure that we get the use of it first before our competitors do, if that makes yeah, sense. Look, so, so the short answer is we do, Michael. It's, it's a good question. So um, we actually have a process uh, that we've had in place now, I'm going to say for four years at least. Got it. Um, where we, we call it the Bridge Program. And what it does is, is we partner with, with Mercedes-Benz and Turner and, arrange, and, and we basically every year we go to Tel Aviv 
um, and we have various leaders from across our system in the marketing, digital, innovation, commercial spaces. And we sit down and we hear from 50 to 60 um, tech startups that have some relevance to our business. Now, we have certain criteria that they need to meet in order for us to hear their story. Um, there are five specific criteria. And then basically what we do is we, we shortlist and we pick 10 or 12 of them and say, right, we think that your technology is, um, A, it's at the nascent stage, right? right? B, it's got real application to our business, whether it's anything from different ways to buy media to different ways to use technology in your phone to understand shopper profiles um, to different ways to um, sign the order in the outlet, you know, getting away from the old pen and paper systems. Yep. So, so a whole suite of different technologies. And so we then partner with these guys um, and uh, we don't necessarily take equity in them, but we, we have a partnership agreement with them. And what we do is say that we can help bring some scale um, to your business. Right. Um, you know, I had a call recently with, with four or five of these guys and, and, and had all of the commercial heads from our lead bottlers across the system. And they had their, their 10 minutes in the sun, right, to say you guys are now in front of, you know, the VP of commercial for Hellenic. Um, you know, who looks after 26 of our markets, right. make your sales pitch, you know. So so we do continually look for um, for new technologies that will allow us to give us that that competitive edge. Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, that it, it actually works both ways, right? So for a startup company or for an early-stage development technology company, getting the scale of Coca-Cola, whether it's in one region or the whole world, is actually transformational for them as well. They get to scale their tech almost instantaneously. But for your teams, it then gets, again, it's defense, it's offense through defense by being able to control that technology at its earliest stages, like you said, when it's nascent, to make mm-hmm. sure that, and it's really interesting if you think about this business, right? Even the signing, you said, of just like a waybill, taking that from, you know, delivery gets signed, making that electronic as opposed to sort of paper and pencil or paper and pen, adds an efficiency to the business that I don't think most people understand. And that efficiency translates directly either A, into more sales or just directly to the bottom line. It's a fascinating way to think about how to use technology, I think. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I love this process. We, we've now introduced it into Latin America as well. So we have two of them running in parallel every year. And, you know, I'm always fascinated to see what are the, the new and new and cool ideas that are going to pop up because um, there, there really is some, some, some great technology, you know, whether it's in personal annex or Loom or Clear or Imagery.Inc., Right. You know, I would never hear of these businesses if it wasn't for this type of process. So, um, so we take this very seriously, and and um, you know there are some real examples now of companies who came through this process a couple of years ago that are now nationally available through their technology in Australia, Japan, and the United States. Right. You know? So it's it's not just a niche idea. Nope. Some of the ones that, that that really add value, and of course, some of the ones who who manage the relationship with Coca Cola in the right way. Um, are now reaping the rewards. And, of course, they can now say they've got Coke on their books, right? Correct. So that then helps them to go and talk to other um, big companies and say, well, we're already working with Coke, so if we can work with them, we can work with you. Right, we can work with any other global corporation. And you yeah. chose Tel Aviv, I just presume, because some of the best high-tech and some of the most innovative companies come out of there. But is it also you get to have more influence there than you may have in Silicon Valley? No, it, it, more the former. More, more the, the former. former right? Just that—that's the tech hub right now. So it's less around the influence, more around where is where are the right where's the right intellectual property going to be? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff, whether you go to Waze or any of the other sort of really deep tech stuff, is going to get developed in Israel. And there are historical reasons which we don't really have to get into as to why that happens. 
Right. But that in and of itself is just another really interesting discussion, but I don't think we should go there for now. <laughs> for another <laughs> Yeah, unless you want to start talking about geopolitics, which today I'm really not in the mood for. <laughs> if you don't, want, if you don't mind, yeah. <laughs> I think I need a cigarette and I don't even smoke. So <laughs> why don't we do that? Look, I think this has been a really great conversation. I'd like to keep it around 45 to 50 minutes only because I don't want to take up so much of your time. Um, sure. But this has been really interesting for me, and hopefully you don't mind sort of the in-depth questions. I'm really interested, otherwise I wouldn't ask. And in a way, I kind of forget that I'm recording. I really feel like I'm just talking to someone and trying to figure new stuff out. So hopefully that's been okay with you. Of course it has. No, it's, it's great. It's, I, I, I always enjoy having these kind of conversations and um, just chatting about what we're doing and, and you know, learning a little bit myself around you know, how, other, how other markets, businesses are, uh, are treating similar challenges. So uh, very happy to be a part of it. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.